0: Listener discretion is advised. Today, we're going to be learning about the murder of Susan Galvin. Susan Galvin was born in Bedford, Massachusetts on December 31st, 1946 to parents Helen and Laura Murr Galvin. Susan was the eldest of seven children and would regularly help take care of the kids while her parents were at work. Susan's younger brother Larry says that Susan was kind of like a second mom to the younger kids. At some point during her early childhood, the family relocated to Spokane, Washington. Susan continued to help her parents run the family while she attended school at North Central High School. Once she graduated, she decided to move out of her parents' house and start her own independent life. By all accounts, Susan was a really caring and responsible woman. So I don't get the feeling that she minded taking care of her siblings, but she was officially an adult now and she had had this dream of moving to the capital city of Seattle. So when Susan was 19 years old, she made that dream a reality and moved to Seattle to begin working as a records clerk for the Seattle Police Department. And this was really big for the time. Susan had wanted to do something in law enforcement, but this was the late 60s and women didn't really work in that field. So, Susan saw working as a records clerk as a great start for her. Having lived in Seattle for a year, the young girl was really enjoying living in the city. She was dating a lot as she was newly single, and she lived right in the downtown core, very close to all the action, including the police department where she worked. The Seattle Police Department was located in the Seattle Center, at the bottom of the Space Needle. It was a very busy, popular area, especially with tourists. Really, it sounds like an awesome area to work in. Susan regularly worked what was called the graveyard shift, starting at midnight and not finishing until 7 or 8 a.m. Her coworkers knew her as a very reliable, responsible, put-together young woman who took her job very seriously. She even had a spotless attendance record. So when Susan didn't show up to her night shift on Sunday, July 9th, 1967, her coworkers were all immediately a bit concerned. But their worries intensified when she also missed her two neck shifts, so much so that her friends at the department decided to file a missing persons report. Officers who were familiar with Susan also went around showing the picture of her ID card to see if anyone had seen her recently. Since it was 1967, I assume her parents probably didn't even know that she was missing, because they most likely didn't talk every day. It's not like now where we have 24-7 communication, so if her family who lived more than four hours away, hadn't heard from Susan in days, it probably wasn't strange. On Thursday, July 13th, the Seattle Center parking lot attendee called police to report that he had found a woman deceased in one of the parking lot elevators. When officers arrived on scene, they were horrified to see that the victim was their coworker and friend, 20-year-old Susan Galvin. Susan lay on the floor of the elevator, partially unclothed with her legs spread apart. She had been raped and strangled with a ligature. The attack was so violent that her underwear had been ripped in two. Apart from one large bruise on her nose, Susan had no defensive wounds, meaning she probably didn't see the attack coming and had no chance to fight back. It was unclear whether she was attacked in the elevator or if she was dragged in there after. Of course, it was a very personal case for the detectives, as they referred to Susan as, quote, one of their own, but they remained professional dusted for fingerprints, and bagged your clothes for evidence. Since the crime was in 1967, and DNA profiling wasn't a thing yet, people didn't know about forensics, so a semen sample was not collected from the underwear. Though, like I said, the actual underwear itself was. The Seattle Police Department was very disturbed when they realized Susan was most likely attacked on her way to work. As co-workers knew, Susan regularly cut through the parking lot as a shortcut while working late at night. This was also why she never showed up to work on the night of July 9th. But if she had been killed on Sunday the 9th, how did she go undiscovered in an elevator connected to the busiest building in the city until Thursday, July 13th? Well, it turns out that the parking garage, as well as those elevators, were closed Monday to Thursday. So when Susan was attacked Sunday night, the elevators were shut down just hours later. Now police began to wonder Was this a random attack? Or was the killer someone who knew the parking garage would be closed? And someone who knew that Susan always walked this route? Also, it's important to note that in 2020, there are cameras in every parking garage at every angle. In 1967, there were no cameras to give detectives any clues. This murder sent terror throughout Seattle for many reasons. First of all, the Seattle Center was a family-friendly place in the downtown area. It was always busy, filled with tourists. It was definitely a place where people felt safe. But also, the victim had worked for the police department. And I think that just kind of gave the idea that if law enforcement isn't safe for murderers, nobody is. I know she was a records clerk and not an actual officer, but I still think that was what people thought after Susan's murder. Investigators were very eager to solve the case in order to calm the public, but also because someone had murdered their friend. So they did the only thing you could do with no DNA and no cameras. dart going around and asking people if they had seen anything. Detectives started with the parking lot attendant who was on duty on Sunday, July 9th. He said he left the garage at the end of his shift shortly after 6 p.m. He had closed the vehicle entrance to the garage so no more cars could come in. However, because people were still in the building and had yet to come collect their cars that were already parked, he kept the elevators in operation and timed them to close in the early morning hours of Monday. This would give people some time to finish their Sunday shifts at work and come collect their car before the garage closed for the week. This also meant that the garage was still open for people to come in. The parking lot attendant was clear, so investigators moved on to asking other people who worked in the building. A couple of employees of the Seattle Center told police they had remembered seeing Susan with a man that afternoon near the downtown core. It was possible that she had even been on a date, as it appeared to these people that the two were being flirty and had chemistry. Now, police believe Susan wasn't murdered until that night, around midnight, actually. But still, if she was on a date hours before her murder, that man would definitely be a suspect. Police had to figure out who this man was. That actually turned out to be quite easy because many of the witnesses knew the man personally, as he too worked at the Seattle Center. This is where the case gets strange. The man who had apparently been seen with Susan was a man who went by the nickname Punchy and worked at the Seattle Center as a clown. Since he worked there, he might have been familiar with Susan's schedule and maybe even after their date had waited for her to walk to the elevators so he could attack. He also would have known that the parking garage closed Sunday to Thursday. Punchy was known to be quite an interesting guy. He actually had a reputation as being a ladies man. I mean women love a guy who can make her laugh, right? Others said he was a bit obnoxious, eccentric, and all around just a pretty weird guy. What was even weirder though was Punchy's behavior following Susan's murder. According to his supervisor, Punchy had taken off work on July 10th and July 11th, the two days after Susan was killed. Then, when he showed up for work on the 12th, he quit his job without notice and said he was moving out of town. Fortunately, police were able to get an interview with Pudgy before he relocated. When pressed, he denied even knowing Susan and said he had nothing to do with it. He even offered to take a polygraph test. His results were later determined as inconclusive. After that, police really had nothing to hold him on. So, Puncty was released and he moved away. Since detectives weren't getting anything from the clown, they started looking into Susan's personal life and were told by her family that Susan, like I mentioned earlier, had recently become single. She had previously been dating a man named Jay, a boy who she actually met in high school back in Spokane. According to the family, it seemed like the relationship was a bit one-sided as they all thought Jay liked Susan more than she liked him. But what really got the investigators attention were the circumstances behind their breakup. Susan had recently broken up with Jay after finding out that he had a criminal record. Because Susan was a record clerk at the Seattle Police Department, Her job was to organize all the arrest reports. One night, while going through reports, she recognized the name on file. It was her own boyfriend's name. Jay had been under the influence of drugs and was actually arrested by Susan's co-workers. Susan was mortified that her boyfriend had gotten into trouble with her work friends and told Jay she didn't want to see him anymore. Like I said before, Susan took her job very seriously and was a very put-together young woman. So I imagine she wouldn't have wanted to get involved in people who were trouble. But was Jay angry enough about the breakup to kill? It's possible. After all, one of the three most popular motives for murder is revenge. The other two being love or sex and money. With this new information, police immediately went to check out Jay. However, it turned out he had an airtight alibi for the night of Susan's murder. He had gone to a concert with some friends and multiple people were able to confirm that. So now, even while police were keeping Punchy the Clown in the back of their minds, They were back to square one, with nobody to interrogate and no new leads. It was back to interviewing the friends and family. This time, Susan's friends told detectives that Susan had gone on a double date the weekend before her murder. She had gone out with her friend and two sailors, and apparently the foursome had a really good time, even making plans to go out again the next weekend, which was the weekend Susan was murdered. Could Susan have been with her sailor the night she was murdered? Perhaps after the date with the clown? I mean, Susan is straight killing it. Two dates in one weekend? She just broke up with her boyfriend. Already dating. I support her in this. Anyway, the two sailors were brought into the station. The two men were very cooperative, admitting they knew Susan and did go out with her and her friend. Though they claimed they knew nothing of her murder and that, although they had wanted to go on a second date, they had never actually made official plans to do so. The sailors also had alibis for pretty much the entire weekend that Susan was murdered. But just to be safe, police asked them to take a polygraph test. The men agreed and both passed. Another dead end. By this time, the police were becoming very discouraged. Like I said, this was a personal case for them, so they really wanted to see Susan's killer behind bars. When months passed and no new tips were coming in, investigators had to wonder if the case would ever be solved. Even as the case began to go cold, the detectives refused to put Susan's case away. Detective Rolf Norton, a detective for the Seattle Police Department in 2019, said that over time, the case was handed down from detective to detective, always getting a fresh pair of eyes on it. Then, when the lead detective retired, he would be sure to pass it on to someone else. Meanwhile, Susan's family continued to struggle with no closure. In an interview with Paula Zahn, Susan's younger brother, Larry, says that their mother suffered greatly and just couldn't handle it. She suffered up until the day she died in 2000. In the years that had passed since Susan's murder, detectives knew DNA technology was becoming more and more instrumental in solving criminal cases. So in 2002, the Seattle Police Department sent some evidence off to the lab. The underwear that Susan had been wearing prior to her murder, the underwear that had been ripped in two, was sent for testing. Miraculously, 35 years after the murder, the lab was able to find traces of semen on the underwear and from it, generate a genetic profile. Police now had their killer's DNA. Because of the violent nature of the crime, it seemed likely that the man who killed Susan had most likely had other violent crimes on his record. But when the DNA profile was run through CODIS, it generated no matches. Once again, the case went cold. It wasn't until 2016 that susan's case would again attempt to be solved it was detective rolf norton who got investigators thinking about susan galvin when he was reviewing a number of cases in their cold case unit detectives asked norton to look into a case that had confounded the department for 50 years it was still very obvious that the seattle police department wanted to find susan's killer no matter how long it took even though by that time the detectives who knew susan in 1967 would have either been retired or dead. But as I mentioned before, the case was always passed down to new detectives. So I think that just having this case remain so relevant for five decades made the case personal to the entire department, old and new. Detective Norton's interest was immediately piqued, and he began looking into the case to see what he could do as next steps. That's when he saw that they already had a DNA profile of their killer. But if the killer's DNA wasn't in the database, he needed to think of another way to compare DNA. Just so you know, when the DNA profile is entered into CODIS, it remains stored in there. Meaning that if their suspect had been arrested since 2002, when they got the profile, it would have alerted authorities of the match. I'm just saying that so you know that running the DNA again wouldn't do anything because it's been stored in CODIS since the last comparison. Detective Norton began writing a list of suspects from the original investigation back in 1967. Since DNA wasn't discovered back then, the suspects had never been tested and compared to the killer's profile. Punchy the Clown was the first suspect to stick out to Norton, and he decided to get a warrant for Punchy's DNA. Then he had to track him down. Detective Norton found Punchy living in Utah. When he was questioned, he again denied knowing Susan. Police decided to let his DNA do the talking, and submitted it into the forensic lab to be compared to the crime scene. Two weeks later, police were notified of the results. It was not a match. I can imagine that this really threw them for a loop. Like why deny knowing Susan? Why purposely be difficult? In interviews with Paula Zahn, two different detectives described this guy as weird and strange. He was also a really eccentric, obnoxious guy. It's possible that he was being difficult with detectives simply for attention. Or maybe he honestly didn't know Susan and the eyewitness accounts were wrong. It's definitely a weird situation, but whatever the reason, it was determined with certainty that Punchy the Clown did not kill Susan Galvin. You're probably getting sick of hearing this, but the case stalled again. They had no more suspects in mind to compare and the DNA didn't have a match in CODIS. There's really nothing more they could do, or so they thought. But in 2018, a new crime-fighting tool changed criminal investigations forever, especially when dealing with cold cases. In April 2018, after decades of evading capture, the Golden State Killer was finally identified and arrested when DNA left at his crime scenes was compared to hundreds of thousands of samples across a genealogy site called GEDmatch. Even though the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo, wasn't on the website himself, He had distant relatives who had uploaded their DNA profiles. Police could tell the Golden State Killer was related to these people, and that's how they got D'Angelo's name. Once they had him as a suspect in their minds, they compared his DNA and got a match. With nothing to lose, Detective Norton decided to give this new form of testing a try. Of course, there was no guarantee it would work, but it was something. Police then sent the DNA sample that they had obtained from Susan's underwear in 2002 over to Paramon NanoLabs, a DNA technology company that specializes in genetic genealogy testing. Parabon genealogist CC Moore entered the DNA profile into GEDmatch. Two different people came up. They weren't the killer, but just like in the Golden State Killer case, the DNA showed that these two people were both distant cousins of the man who killed Susan Galvin. In fact, very distant cousins. They shared less than 2% of the same DNA with the killer. With this information, C.C. Moore was able to create a family tree and see where the two people had a relation. When looking at the tree, she saw both the people who came up were somehow related to the Whippitch family. The analysis can give the lab a list of possible relations that the killer had to the person on GEDmatch. For example, in another case that the Parabon Nano Labs did, the results gave the lab a list of seven possible suspects. So therefore, I'm just saying that the lab may not give you one name and say this person is for sure the killer. So Moore had to go through the Whippage line and review all the possible men who could have been the killer. She found one man who fit the bill. His name was Frank Whippage. At the time of Susan's murder, he was 26 and working as a security guard. But what's more, he was also living in Seattle at the time. When police were given the name, they were puzzled. This man had never even been on their radar for the murder of Sudan Galvin. In order to confirm Frank Whippich was the killer, they needed to directly compare his DNA to the crime scene sample. Like I said, the lab maybe had a list of 10 different Whippich men who it could be. I'm not sure, but it's not like the lab would say it's 100% Frank until you get some of Frank's DNA. But there was one problem. Frank Whippich had been dead for 20 years. So the officers went to Frank's children and were able to get a warrant to get their DNA. The DNA came back, telling investigators there was an extremely good chance that Susan Galvin's killer was a parent to Frank's children. Investigators also sent fingerprints that had been collected at the crime scene over to the lab. There, they were able to compare the crime scene prints to Frank Whippage's prints. Since Frank was a security guard, his fingerprints had to be taken on his job application. The two were compared and matched. This was enough to get a warrant to exhume Frank Whippage's body and test his bone marrow DNA so they could be 100% sure it was him, even though they were pretty certain anyway. In early 2019, Frank Whippage's body was exhumed and his DNA compared. It was a match. Now, both his fingerprints and bone marrow DNA confirmed he was Susan Galvin's killer. But Frank Whippage was never a person of interest in Susan's murder. So, who was this guy? Frank Whippage, a Seattle native, was a former soldier, and in 1967, was 26 years old and working as a security guard around the Seattle Center. He was married with a young son. It's theorized he may have been actually working in the Seattle Center around that time, and Susan's murder was simply an opportunistic sexual attack. After Susan's murder, Frank had another child and then got divorced. In 1971, he was arrested for larceny, and in 1975, was arrested on a weapons charge. None of these charges were violent though. While reading over these arrests, I wondered why his prints wouldn't have been in CODIS. My guess is that in the early 70s, they didn't have a digital database yet. So his prints were only stored on hard copy. And then when CODIS was created, his prints weren't entered. Frank Whippich died in 1987 at age 46 from complications with diabetes. After he was confirmed as the killer in May, 2019, Investigators began looking into other unsolved murders in areas where Frank was previously stationed as a soldier. New York, Alaska, and even Germany. Perhaps he was responsible for more than just one. After all, it seems odd to do such a sexual and violent killing to a stranger and then never commit a violent crime again or never have before. Frank's two sons were shocked to hear what their father had done but were cooperative with the investigation and extended condolences to the Galvin family. Susan's family was very happy and thanked the investigators for finding the killer, even though Susan's parents and some of her siblings were already dead. But the question of why still remains. As for other unsolved murders, they're still looking into Frank and he hasn't been confirmed as the killer for any other cases yet. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in.